welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Oncology. In this podcast, three oncology pharmacists discuss the important role that pharmacists hold in the recognition and management of immune-related adverse events in patients receiving treatment with immune checkpoint inhibitors for cancer. The discussion is guided by pre-canvassed questions provided by community, outpatient and ambulatory pharmacists. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from MSD. This activity is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. Hello, my name is Dr. Sandra Quayer. I'm a clinical associate professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at the University of Illinois College of Pharmacy. I'm also an oncology pharmacist and director of the oncology residency program at the University of Illinois Hospital and Health System. It is my pleasure to welcome you on this discussion on the importance of pharmacists in the recognition, monitoring, and management of immune-related adverse events in patients treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors. I am here with Dr. Sonia Amin Thomas, Associate Professor of Pharmacy Practice at PCOM Georgia School of Pharmacy and Clinical Oncology Specialist at Weltstore North Fulton Hospital and Northwest Georgia Oncology Center in Georgia. I'm also joined by Ms. Mira Desai, Senior Oncology Pharmacist at the University College London Hospital, NHS Foundation Trust, located in London, United Kingdom. With the approval of immune checkpoint inhibitors, the immunotherapy is now center stage in treating patients with cancer. It is reported that up to 40% of patients diagnosed with cancer may be a candidate for treatment with immune checkpoint inhibitors. As a member of the healthcare team, pharmacists are important in recognizing and managing patients uh, experiencing immune adverse events from the treatment of immune checkpoint inhibitors. In today's discussion with my panel members, we're going to discuss key considerations for identifying and monitoring immune-related adverse events, approaches to recognizing the management of immune-related adverse events, and finally, building strategies for monitoring and management of immune-related adverse events. Let's kick it off with key considerations for identifying and monitoring immune-related adverse events. With immunotherapy, uh, we know that the mechanism of action is it releases the breaks from the immune system to identify and destroy cancer cells. The exact mechanism of how the immunotherapy causes immune-related adverse effects is still unknown, but we know that immune checkpoint inhibitors can cause a spectrum of adverse events resulting from inflammation by far the most common adverse event reported in patients receiving immune checkpoint inhibitors are dermatologic toxicities. Up to 72% of patients may experience those. The median time to onset is anywhere from three to six weeks. The next most common adverse event falls into the category of gastrointestinal side effects. You can see that the more common adverse events in this category is diarrhea with up to 54% of patients. Up to 27% of patients may experience colitis. The main difference here between colitis and diarrhea is when patients experience colitis, it also may be associated, in addition to loose bowel movements, blood, mucus in the stool, as well as abdominal pain and fever. The colitis is more likely encountered when we use dual immune checkpoint inhibitors versus monotherapy. 
Endocrinopathies can also are also known to occur with immune checkpoint inhibitors, and up to 10% of patients may experience that with a more delayed onset of action. Respiratory adverse events include pneumonitis, which is inflammation of the lining of the lung. This may manifest as shortness of breath or new onset cough. Up to 10% of patients with the combination immune checkpoint inhibitors may experience pneumonitis. With this, um, has the longest onset of action with a median onset of 34 weeks. Other adverse events include hematologic toxicities, renal toxicities um, are also known to occur. Neurologic and cardiovascular toxicities are relatively uncommon with monotherapy immune checkpoint inhibitors, but the incidence increases, again, when you use dual immune checkpoint inhibitors. Now let's turn to our panel and discuss a little bit further regarding uh, these adverse events. The questions I'll be asking the panel members uh, that was submitted by the audience. So let's start off with our first question. Dr. Amin, what are the most common red flags of immune-related adverse events and what are most overlooked indicators? Thank you, Sandra, for that wonderful introduction. Um, I'm going to kind of jump in and kind of go through some of this. Uh, you know, it's Immunotherapy has been revolutionary. It has changed the world of oncology. Um, and like you mentioned, it comes with its own set of management and side effects. Um, but as far as like common red flags, I would say kind of what you mentioned earlier, right? The biggest things we're watching out for are, you know, rash, diarrhea. But like you mentioned, it depends on the timeline. How long have they been on immunotherapy um, and, you know, what grade of toxicity is it? Because that kind of really changes the realm of treatment for immunotherapy related side effects. Um, and I think the biggest thing is also making sure that the patients are sort of aware of these side effects. And um, for myself, you know, educating them on the timeline of it is really um, big for me. So what, what about you, uh, Mira? Do you have anything to add to that? Yes, thank you, Sandra and Sonia. Um, I think actually from my practice, I think one of the aspects with regards to the timeline that you mentioned um, is the misconception that actually these side effects can occur much further down the line in treatment. And actually you've got a portion of patients that may experience adverse events early on in their treatment after just one cycle of treatment where they um, don't get treated because they're misconstrued as being non-related to the immunotherapy. And the consequence of that is that the grading worsens, the severity obviously worsens, and you increase the risk of admission and prolonged admission with poorer outcomes for the patients. Um, so yeah, I think with regards to red flags, it is what has been mentioned already. I think there are also ones where perhaps as pharmacists, when we're counseling, we perhaps maybe don't put enough emphasis on. Um, and that includes things like the cognitive changes that someone might get or mood disturbances um, to identify those endocrinological or neurological um, adverse events that perhaps we don't put as much focus on as things like diarrhea and bloody stools. I absolutely agree. It's those more obscure, rare, uncommon adverse events that sometimes get overlooked. And so one of the things that I know I do in my practice is really emphasizing to my patients that if you are to go to the ER you know, the emergency room that you communicate to any healthcare provider that you're on immunotherapy, that first and foremost, that anything that's landing you in, the, in landing you in the ER, make sure to rule out that it may be an adverse event from the immune checkpoint inhibitor. And I think in particular are those neurotoxicities, um, the cardiac toxicities, again, 
relatively rare, but are can be fatal and, and much severe if we don't treat them appropriately. So the other question our audience had is how often do you monitor and how do you monitor for these immune-related adverse events? I think that's something that, you know, comes up with, you know, uh, clinicians, uh, with patients, like how do we monitor and how often are we monitoring these adverse events? You know, um, for myself, I actually, so HOPA, which is the Hematology Oncology Pharmacy Association, they've actually come out with a really good guide and a list of questions to go through, kind of like a system check. Um, and I think it's extremely helpful because on there, they've got, um, you know, a section for like ocular um, toxicities and things like that. And while they are very rare with immunotherapy, they do occur. And we've had, you know, patients who've had ocular toxicities where we had to have intervened. And if, you know, if I did, hadn't gone through kind of that questionnaire um, as a guide, I probably would have missed it. And so I think it's, it's uh, crucial that we, you know, check up on every body system when we're asking questions. Another thing I think is very helpful is, you know, knowing their past medical history, knowing if they've got other autoimmune diseases uh, to figure out how closely to monitor, because for those patients, I know for us, we will monitor a little closer. We also do kind of a weekly check-in call um, in between cycles for those patients specifically. And um, also for patients that may already be on certain types of other, you know, treatments. So if they're getting chemotherapy with it, you know, what are kind of the common side effects of that, of those chemotherapy agents to help kind of differentiate between the two? Yeah, I mean, if you're having like fluorouracil alongside pebrolizumab, then if you've got that introduction of diarrhea, well, is it coming from the fluorouracil or is it coming from the pembrolizumab? And it can be very confusing for the patients. Um, I think what you touched on when you were talking about guidelines are really important. I think that's what we really need in all centres to help guide all healthcare professionals, not just pharmacists. And that is then hinged on multi-speciality approaches. Um, so, I mean, in terms of monitoring, it varies depending on the type of toxicity, the severity of the toxicity. You look at thyroid disorders, you know, physiological changes you're not going to see for four to eight weeks. So actually that will dictate how often you might recheck symptoms and bloods, whereas you might have um, other changes where you may need to be monitoring it on a weekly basis or a twice weekly basis, regardless of whether it's a low grade toxicity or not. Um, so I think the guidelines and the multi-speciality approach where you can have those open discussions to create somewhat general management plans, but then more bespoke ones for those, for example, Sonia, like you said, with the autoimmune patients, where you can have a management plan that kind of um, can pick up those risks to patients quite early on. And I think, you know, what Sonia brought up, um, I also use the HOPA immunotherapy toolkit. There's um, several attachments that are designed for us to really reinforce what we're communicating at bedside with our patients and they could take it home. And it essentially goes through each system and what to look for. Because, And I think, you know, what's also important with that is, is as we go out, you know, one year into therapy, re-educating these patients on these signs and symptoms. I think we do a really good job in the beginning. Uh, but as you know, some of these patients are on these therapies for over a year. And we just feel like they've been doing fine. And then suddenly they have an adverse event, but because they've been on this therapy for so long, the patient doesn't really relate it back to that therapy. But as you said, Mira, you know, they can have these adverse events, you know, even after discontinuation of therapy. 
So I think, you know, providing these um, informational sheets and, you know, here in the U.S., we use the HOPE, one of the tools is this HOPA immunotherapy toolkit um, that's available online, uh, but also re-educating. I think that's another key factor um, as they're six months into therapy, you know, eight months into therapy, just checking in with the patient um, is another strategy. I want to kind of shift to the community setting pharmacist. How do you suggest or what would you suggest for that community pharmacist um, in terms of talking to their patients about monitoring and experiencing adverse events? I think what comes to mind for me is they're going to the community because of diarrhea, right? And they want to get that anti-diarrheal. What would you suggest for that community pharmacist? I was just going to say, I think your first thing is identifying those patients, because I think the bigger challenge in the community setting is the lack of um, awareness of whether a patient might be on a certain treatment or not, which is something we're quite privileged in a hospital setting. Um, and this is where your immunotherapy alert cards would play in. Um, and then you've also got this education and training, Sandra, that you mentioned, which actually is, is important for all healthcare professionals as well as patients. And actually, if you provide the pharmacists with the tools, then they can target the questions accordingly. Because in the UK, your community pharmacist is part of that, is part of the community. There's a reason why that word is there. And they see um, the pharmacist more frequently than they would see their doctor, primarily because you've got your repeat medications that you go in for, you go and buy over-the-counter medications and various other things. So um, it's an opportunity to just have a conversation and you can target once you know that a patient is going to be on immunotherapy, you could maybe structure your service so that you can target those conversations periodically. Sonia, anything to add to that? Yes. You know, I was actually going to mention, and Sandra, you may already kind of use this as well, along with HOPA's toolkit. They've they actually have these little patient wallet cards. Um, I know for some of my older patients, I'll actually print that out and I'll tell them, you know, if you do go to the pharmacy to hand it to like the community pharmacist that's there so that they're aware, because I know a lot of times they're not aware of the side effects since they don't deal with it as much or how to kind of go about it. And I agree. Uh, diarrhea is probably the most common, but also rash. Um, I know a lot of them will go in uh, for rash as well. And, you know, just I feel like it's not usually as big of a deal because the treatment for it is similar like it would be for any other rash or, you know, just even with diarrhea, I think the biggest thing is the key is for them to understand the severity um, and the grading of it because that's sort of what will change treatment. So, but I, yes, I agree with Mira as well um, on kind of just that education portion. All right. Thank you. So let's now talk about approaches to recognizing and managing immune-related adverse events. So there are some challenges that we can experience in the early recognition of immune-related adverse events. Working in oncology, for me, for the past 20 years, we're already conditioned with the side effects of chemotherapy, myelosuppression, fever, uh, nausea, vomiting, alopecia. But when we talk about immune checkpoint inhibitors, and we know, we saw the broad spectrum of organs and tissues that it may impact or affect, the identification and the early recognition becomes a little bit more complex for healthcare uh, clinicians. First, the nonspecific nature of these early symptoms. Second, the oftentimes in some settings, we're using combination. You heard one of our panelists talk about 
when we combine chemotherapy with immune checkpoint inhibitors, when there are both agents, our chemotherapy and our immune checkpoint inhibitors can cause a specific adverse event. So how do we go about um, determining which is the exact etiology contributing to, to that adverse event can be a, a challenge for clinicians. Another challenge that we encounter is the onset, the delayed onset, when these adverse events are occurring. Um, and patient delayed re uh, patient reporting. Some of our patients uh, don't have the tools to recognize they're experiencing adverse events or wait till it's severe and then report the adverse events. As you see in what's been reported in the literature, it's always important to have these early recognition so we can interfere or you know provide that supportive care that's necessary so it doesn't progress to a severe adverse event. And then finally, the monitoring strategies. You know, we, as Dr., you know, both our, our panelists discussed, there are NCCN, SITC, uh, ASCO, uh, ESMO, they all have guidelines to help us assist with monitoring um, however, clinicians do encounter some challenges in terms of implementing some of these monitoring strategies, and they're not always uh, operationalized at our um, health systems. So once we recognize the adverse event, as uh, Sonia mentioned, it's important to grade the adverse event. What this slide uh, summarizes is the CTC criteria ranging from grade one to grade four. And depending on the adverse event, uh, you have to grade it. And depending on the grade, it will really dictate how you manage that patient. A grade one, you, you just provide supportive care therapy versus a grade four, you would interrupt or discontinue therapy and hospitalize the patient. What you'll notice with the management of immune-related adverse events and a common theme here is the use of corticosteroids. You know, as we're priming up the immune system, how do we extinguish an overactive immune system is with the use of corticosteroids. So you can see here, and then one of the management strategies is using uh, corticosteroids. So now let's turn to our panel and again, ask some key questions from our audience. So our first question here is, what are the immediate actions that need to be taken if I suspect a patient has an immune-related adverse event? I think the first thing is to establish whether they're red flag symptoms or not, because if they're a red flag symptom, you're going to want to direct them to their nearest A&E, whether it be a local or the specialist hospital that they attend, whichever is easier. Um, I think you've got, you've got to provide the tools for someone to be able to kind of figure out exactly, I guess, how to determine the severity of someone's symptoms as well. Um, what you don't want to do is panic someone, but at the same time, you want to make sure that their treating team is aware of the symptoms, the background and the history of that presentation so that they can liaise with the relevant specialty team if needed, or they could then triage the patient over the telephone. So we have a unique setup in where I work, where we have an advice line. And so we would advise patients to call that advice line. Um, and then they would be triaged over the telephone. And um, then you would speak to an on-call doctor, or you might be taken back to your nurse, or there may be an outpatient plan that's done outside of the hospital. We have a helpline like that, but 
um, at our site, you know, the pharmacist is actually not really involved with that. Um, my, you know, my involvement actually comes when they are in person actually getting immunotherapy in the infusion center when I would go talk to them each time. And it's interesting because they'll tell me things that they haven't mentioned to the um, provider. Um, and so it's interesting because I'll spend a lot more time with them and they'll sometimes say things that they forgot to say. So my protocol is more so of kind of what Sandra mentioned earlier, re-education, re-education and follow-up. And then if they tell me certain things, uh, I will actually go to the provider and we will talk about it together. And we'll come up with a plan on if we need to also refer them out to a specialist, you know, pulmonologist, endocrinologist. And we'll also go ahead and look to see if there's some, you know, appropriate labs and things like that that need to be um, taken before they leave. And then I'll assist with sending a prescription if needed, kind of for that grading. So that's sort of how we will kind of go about it once we kind of suspect something and trying to figure out sort of the grading of it and kind of work together for treatment. Yeah. So when I think about this, you know, I think the easy ones, the immune related adverse the easy ones are like the diarrhea, the rash, because it's like such a physical kind of thing that patients will talk about. Um, the more challenging ones are that headache and fatigue, right? So they just, you know, our patients are like, you know, oh, I've had this headache, and then we'll write it off to the antiemetic, or, you know, they'll just say, oh, it just comes and goes. Um, and then you start asking more probing more questions, right? And, you know, so I think once you start opening up the more questions, you know, is it all do you chronically have a headache? Are you always tired? And then you start you know, you know, higher suspicion for hypo, you know, pituitary disorders, which, you know, this is one of the endocrinopathies that seems to sneak up on us, at least in, in our practice, right? Um, because yeah. there's just so it's these adverse events that you just, it's not of a classic thing that you just kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm just tired, because I have cancer, of course, I'm going to be tired, or yeah, I have a headache. Um, and so I think that those are the ones that are a little bit more challenging. Um, we do uh, our for our cortisol, we don't automatically check that as a, a marker, as a panel. I don't know. Do you guys automatically check cortisol in all of your patients? Yes, I, we do a random cortisol for all of our, um, well, pretty much most of our immunotherapy. I think even with the trials, because in the trials and a lot of the protocols, it's not actually listed as an essential blood that you need to take as part of the critical test. So even then, we'd discuss it with the PI and say, actually, should we monitor this? Because we know that you can actually just flag up some of these patients through the random cortisol and then do a 9 a.m. and target yeah. it that way. Um, so we have start, yeah. And so we, with the combination, we are do mon monitoring the cortisol. Um, but like you said, when you look at the monitoring parameters of the immune checkpoint inhibitors, they don't all necessarily state to monitor cortisol. Um, and so that's something that we 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 look at and we suspect. Um, but that's been an adverse event that, you know, I think is, it can be challenging as these very nonspecific symptoms and, you know, hypophysitis now suddenly, you know, this is a, a brand new adverse event that we didn't have to deal with in oncology, like hypophysitis. What, what is that? What Sonia said as well, it's just utilizing the fact that you've got a multidisciplinary team around you and being able to tap in. So the another question that uh, comes from our audience is how do I recognize and control undesirable side effects from corticosteroid treatment? 
Yes, you know, we deal with this a lot. And of course, as you know, it's it's a huge deal, the weight gain and not just, so weight gain is probably the most undesirable, but also just a lot, the way patients respond to it, some of them, you know, they're up all night, they, and then not getting it that enough, like not getting enough sleep and things like that, they will end up, you know, it'll affect their day to day. And we actually take a very, um, non-pharmacologic approach for these patients. And we go through and educate them a lot on diet, nutrition, uh, exercise. There's a lot of emphasis that we put sort of kind of like the integrative approach um, that we go through. Uh, We'll even talk to them about yoga, meditation, stress management while they're on uh, steroids and sort of the importance of it. And then we'll also educate them on how to sort of eat. Um, And this is more so because our site, we don't really have a nutritionist on site. And so the pharmacist has sort of taken on that role to help guide them in that sense on what to eat, um, you know, what types of foods and things like that. So we have a lot of um, non-pharmacologic therapies that we use. What about you guys, Mira? So um, I would say that we don't get too involved with the non-pharmacological side, but we do refer them. So at the place that I work, there is a McMillan um, supportive center, like downstairs, where you can send patients to and refer them through their nurses and they can provide information. But I completely agree with the sleep hygiene aspect of it um, in that you don't really want to just jump straight on your zopic loans, for example, um, because th- there's also that's that's not really a long term solution. What you really want is for them to find a way which they're probably more likely to also adhere to because there's a stigma associated with those kinds of medications. Um, we actually are quite fortunate that we have a dietitian within our clinic. So we actually just refer the patients when we think that there's a nutritional kind of need there. Yeah, for us, when we have a patient that is on steroids, uh, we we first and foremost are looking at that diabetic patient and making sure that there's um, enhanced glucose monitoring. Uh, I don't know about you guys are in the UK, but my patients just don't like to use those, you know, check their blood glucoses. And not all of them have the fancy ones that are connected to their phones. But uh, really making sure that we have a plan for those diabetic patients of doing enhanced uh, glucose monitoring is really critically important. Uh, Making sure they're on good GI prophylaxis with those high-dose corticosteroids. Um, And then the pharmacist really plays a key role with tapering those steroids, right? They always look to us to start once they, you know, um, are those symptoms are, you know, their resolution get down to a grade one, we start that slow, gradual taper. um, And they really look for us to the pharmacist to provide the uh, guidance on tapering and then counseling the patient because that tapering schedule can be very challenging for some of our patients, especially our our low literacy uh, patients. So I think that's something that the pharmacist plays a key point um, with managing uh, the, those kind of aspects when we're administering corticosteroids for these um, immune-related adverse events. I mean, I think this is also where the community pharmacists come in quite quite significantly, um, that in that they are the ones that are probably going to see these patients once they've, once they've been discharged from hospital, or even if they come off immunotherapy and are on long-term steroid on a slow taper, that these are where you can utilize your health checks, so your BP checks, your blood glucose checks that you can do in your local community pharmacy, and then your targeted reviews. So just to tie back into the community, I think that's a really yeah, no. role they play. 
Absolutely. I think that community pharmacy is essential because they're likely the ones that are dispensing that that prescription for that steroid taper and to really, and they know the patients, they know whether or not, you know, they're on glucose or on, you know, uh, insulin, um, and really reinforcing the education on, you know, these uh, supportive care aspects of being on these high, these, these glucocorticoids. So our next section is building strategies for monitoring manage, and management of immune-related adverse events. So when we look at the management of immune-related adverse events, there are five pillars that we look at. Prevention, anticip anticipate, detect, treat, and monitor. So again, I think we talked about uh, first and foremost is really recognizing the immune-related adverse events and really knowing that it can happen in, in any system or tissue um, in our bodies. Um, in recognizing that, we want to make sure that our patients um, have these early recognition signs so we can prevent a more serious or these uh, side effects from escalating to a more grade three or four adverse event. So identifying those patients who are at higher risk, we talked about those patients, maybe those patients who have an autoimmune disorder. Um, and also, I would say those patients who are on dual immune checkpoint inhibitors they're at a higher risk for experiencing immune-related adverse events and, and providing education, anticipating. So really assessing each patient. We talked about lab monitoring, CBC, thyroid function, liver, kidney. As we know that the immune, immune, immune checkpoint inhibitors can impact all of these systems. So we're making sure that we're monitoring at baseline and um, periodically while on therapy. Uh, detection is important in terms of being able to determine what is caught, what is the etiology, um, is the etiology the immune adverse uh, event from the immune checkpoint inhibitor, or is this disease progression? Sometimes with some of these um, adverse events, such as pneumonitis, it could, and the patient experiences shortness of breath, could this be disease progression of their lung cancer? Can this be an infection? So being able to distinguish um, and what labs to order, what uh, diagnostic procedures the patient to go on uh, to undergo to really be able to detect if this patient's experiencing immune-related adverse event or even a referral. Treating, we talked about the, the mainstay of treatment of immune-related adverse events really centers on immunosuppressants such as corticosteroids. And in some instances where it's refractory corticosteroids, implementing other immunosuppressants such as salsep and infliximab may be indicated. Monitoring, we talked about monitoring um, these immune-related adverse events in terms of labs, in terms of signs and symptoms uh, of these adverse events, and monitoring for uh, the supportive care aspect if these patients are on corticosteroids. Um, so those are some just key highlights when we're talking about uh, the management of immune-related adverse events. So we're gonna turn back to our panel. And the first question we have here is, in your experience, what's the best way to counsel patients to recognize potential immune-related adverse events? Now, we already talked about this to some degree, um, but in terms of counseling, so we we talked about giving, giving them the, uh, the wallet card. Uh, we talked about the, the toolkit. Any other suggestions on counseling these patients, uh, Mira? So I always like to go in a little bit with 
when you talk very briefly about how the drug works, you can then kind of make them understand that it can affect any organ. I think that is critical because with chemotherapy, they're so used to kind of a set a list of side effects whereas with immunotherapy you can quickly overwhelm someone and you could spend an hour talking to them about just the side effects that come from it so there's an element of this that is also getting them to feel confident in saying well actually okay I've got a new symptom here and I can't explain it I need to discuss this with someone rather than keeping it with themselves so I think Sonia, you might have mentioned this before, but it's more just getting those patients to not hold it in and, you know, delay this like diagnosis and then obviously making the severity a lot worse. Um, so if you can go general and then become more specific. So if you know you've got a patient with an autoimmune disease then you can make that counseling a little bit more bespoke to them. And it's just making them aware of resources as well that they can access when they're at home. Yeah, you know, I completely agree with you, Mira. I think that's a great point. I think educating the patient on the purpose of the medication, as well as the mechanism. I think that, you know, the mechanism, as we know, tells a lot about the medication and having them understand that. I know, you know, chemo care also does such a great job of uh, going through that and also kind of going through what we, you know, like the nadir and when they're expected to see it. I think that's also key. And then also what Sandra mentioned earlier, I thought that was really great is asking those specific questions, guiding them, so if they don't mention something, making sure that we just keep kind of honing in on it uh, because they may not even know that it's important to mention one thing um, that they didn't say. So I think just like you mentioned also, are just being very specific. So the audience also had a question and, and I could see, you know, where this is coming from is how to determine the sense of urgency or when to send them back to the provider, you know, like you know, it's just a little diarrhea, or I just have a mild cough, you know, can you, can you provide maybe some guidance for these pharmacists, then when they encounter a patient, a cancer patient who's being treated with an immune checkpoint inhibitor, has this mild symptom, when is it appropriate or not appropriate to refer them back to their provider, or actually even go to the emergency room? Can you provide some guidance with that? You know, I know for myself, uh, the key thing I've noticed is kind of the duration. Um, you know, how long has it been since they've had it? You know, what else is going on? Anybody in their family sick? Things like that. So I think that duration is key um, to try to figure out if it's related to the medication or something else. And that's probably one of the biggest ways that I will kind of differentiate and then no matter even how small or big the side effect, that communication with documentation is also very important. Any side effect they mention, even if it seems small, will document it because of that early like recognition and prevention has shown to really kind of help um, reduce the severity and the grading of it. So I always feel like nothing is almost too um, minimal, I guess, to not communicate or document or even refer out to a specialist. Yeah, I completely agree, Sonia. Um, documentation is so important, more, more so just because it creates a uh, culture of transparency amongst all the healthcare professionals. Um, and it helps just track a patient's journey, where it, whether it be a progression of their symptoms or whether it be how they've responded to a suggested treatment. This is always should be symptoms, history, any actions taken, any advice given, should always just go in. Um, I think 
yeah, I think duration is really important as well. I completely agree on that. I mean, for example, diarrhea is a really good one since you brought it up earlier, Sandra. Um, if patients are uh, experiencing diarrhea and they jump on loperamide and they don't notice any kind of improvement after 24 hours or it's worsening, I would normally advise them to say, actually, you need to call the advice line. But if they then see blood in their diarrhea, then actually, then I say, you need to go to A&E and you need to notify your team at the same time that you're coming in. We have quite a, we have quite a nice setup in that if they were to call our local hospital advice line because they're one of our patients, regardless of which A&E they would go to, that advice line would call the A&E in advance to give them a background of the patient so that they would be seen in a timely manner. So that if it is something like, in the example of diarrhea, if it turns out that it's iocolitis, that is um, treated and picked up as soon as possible. Yeah, I think both of you make some really great points and I completely agree is that like no side effect is minimal and the key is communicating, right? Um, I know at, in our health system, we have a, an EMR where they can send us messages through the EMR where we can respond. Um, we have a nurse hotline where they can respond to that. I think that another great point that you make is duration. I think the other thing I would add to that is worsening. So if it's getting worse and it's not getting better, that's when you're definitely going to want to communicate or not, you know, either with the, the hotline number or going straight to the ER. The other thing that I think is um, the, the one, the side effects that tend to be a little bit more severe, which is that pneumonitis, right? So that's one where I tell patients that any acute uh, shortness of breath, uh, new onset cough, that warrants a, a call. So I think what, what even Mira said is really establishing that baseline. And I think that's another part where pharmacists play a key role is establishing that baseline and that initial, what is your, you know, what is our baseline labs or baseline renal function, baseline LFTs, baseline bowel movements, um, trying to really establish that. And then that counseling, you know, when you document your counseling, putting that in your note. So now anytime we, uh, the patient calls, we can refer back to that note and like, okay, well, this is what your baseline is. Anything different from your baseline, we're going to blame the the drug therapy, right? Because drug pharmacists always like to blame the drugs, right? That's what we do. We're like, it's the drug's fault, right? <laughs> um, but I think, uh, I think that that's also another important feature for us as pharmacists is as we're counseling, um, we're also establishing that baseline with that patient. Um, some of my patients, again, these are elderly patients, and I think there's some challenges there. So oftentimes, you know, I'm writing things down. I'm like, okay, this is your baseline, you know, and writing it down for them or their, their, um, their caregiver. So they have an idea of this is what is normal. Because sometimes I think patients also think that they call too much or they don't want to bother the, the provider or the, the healthcare providers. And I think that, that we're here to really try to make this a successful journey. We know the positive outcomes with these therapies, um, but they're not benign and we want them to continue on it. So early recognition is so critical. So we can, we can intervene and not, and not disrupt their, their therapies. But both of you uh, really did a great job with highlighting those key things establishing a baseline, documenting it, um, duration, and worsening of these adverse events. 
are all good points for our pay for us as pharmacists to counsel and share with our patients and their caregivers. So now uh, that really brings us to a conclusion. Uh, thank you for watching this discussion about the important role of pharmacists in managing immune-related adverse events treated with immune checkpoint inhibitor. We hope you found this useful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access more content on this and related topics on Touch Oncology at www.touchoncology.com. Mm-hmm.